On the latest episode of On the Case, we're looking at the High Court decision in London Trocadero 2015 LLP versus Picture House Cinemas Limited, the highest profile yet unpaid rent claim arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. Joining me to discuss the judgment and its implications is Nick Trompeter, QC of Selborne Chambers, who acted for the successful landlord. Great to speak to you, Nick. Thanks. Good to be here. So London Trocadero versus Picture House raises issues familiar to many tenants and landlords during this pandemic. So so can you just sort of run through the details of the parties and the facts of the dispute and and the scale of the unpaid rent and service charge that we're talking about here that was at the centre of the case? Of course. Um, So the claimant in this case um, is the landlord in respect of two leases of cinema premises at the Trocadero Centre in London. Uh, There were three named defendants The first one, Picture House, uh, was the tenant under the leases. The second, Gallery Cinemas, was the original tenant. And the third, Cineworld, uh, was the guarantor. Um, The facts uh, are pretty conventional. Um, No rent had been paid by the tenant since June 2020, so shortly after the first lockdown came into force. And uh, by the time the matter had got to court, the total arrears of rent, service charges and other matters stood at about £2.9 million. Um, So that's what the dispute was about. It was just the unpaid rent. Mm. Uh, And I imagine in in the ordinary course of events, that's one of the more straightforward uh, claims to bring to court, I I, I would guess. But um, in these pandemic times, what we're, we're focusing on in these cases tends to be the the uh, defences that have been advanced on behalf of the tenants, which are unique to the, the set of circumstances that we're, we're going through. So so what were the key arguments advanced on behalf of the tenant uh, in this case? Well, you're quite right. Pre-COVID, um, it's doubtful whether any landlord would have gone to the trouble of issuing proceedings for the recovery of a debt mm. in the form of unpaid rent. A landlord either would have commenced forfeiture proceedings, perhaps insolvency proceedings or something else. But with those avenues cut off, landlords have had a few alternatives available to them, hence why um, landlords have had to commence proceedings for the recovery mm. of the sums due. And as you rightly say, in the context of COVID, tenants have uh, come up with various arguments as to why uh, the rent uh, wasn't payable at all. And in this case, uh, the tenant came up with two principal arguments as to why the rent wasn't payable. The first was on the basis of an implied term, and the second was on the basis of a failure of consideration, as it was put. There was a separate argument arising out of the tenant's counterclaim. Um, In this case, the tenant has a counterclaim uh, relating to insurance matters, and the tenant claim to be able to set off against the rent due sums it was claiming under the counterclaim. So uh, those were the three limbs of the defence uh, that were articulated in, in this particular case. Um, and how did, the, how did the court approach those arguments and what did it ultimately decide? So um, if we take them in turn, um, as for the implied term argument, the tenant uh, had argued that the lease contained uh, one of two alternative implied terms. One was 
uh, slightly narrower and one was broader. The, the narrow term was put in this way, and um, if I can just quote from the judgment, it was said that the lease contained an implied term that if the permitted use of the premises by the tenant, uh, and that was as a cinema, under the leases were to become illegal, then the obligation to pay rent and service charges otherwise due thereunder would be suspended and cease to be payable for that period. So that was the narrow term. As for the broader implied term, uh, it was put in this way that the sums due under the leases would only be payable in respect of periods during which the premises could be used for its intended purpose as a cinema with attendance at a level commensurate with that which the parties would have anticipated at the time the leases were entered into. So those were the two terms. Um, the court dealt with um, the implied term argument um, in a relatively swift fashion, applying conventional and well-settled legal principles. So it is now well settled that um, an imply, a term won't be implied into a contract unless it meets uh, what is um, sometimes referred to as the business efficacy test mm. or the obviousness test. And so far as business efficacy was concerned, the absence of um, those clauses, or to put it another way, the requirement for the tenant to pay rent, even though the premises couldn't be used for the intended purpose, didn't deprive the leases of business efficacy. The leases still worked perfectly well. It's just that um, as between the parties, they had allocated that the risk uh, that the premises couldn't be used should be shouldered by the tenant, but that didn't deprive the lease of business efficacy. And as regards obviousness, well, um, the judge um, pointed to the fact that there is a long-standing uh, common law principle that a landlord, when granting a lease, gives no warranty as to the use of the premises. And this particular lease actually contained a fairly standard sort of provision that um, there was no covenant, covenant warranty or representation that the demised premises could lawfully be used for the permitted use. And so against that backdrop and with the express term in the lease, it wasn't obvious that the lease should contain the two terms that were proposed. And so on that basis, the implied term argument was uh, quickly uh, disposed of. Um, so, as I said, there were three arguments. The second one um, was the failure of basis or failure of consideration argument, and that was uh, more difficult. And the judge um, spent more time considering this aspect of the defence. Now, what the judge did was, first of all, um, analyse what is meant by um, a failure of basis or a failure of consideration in this context. And referring to a Supreme Court case called Barnes, um, the judge recognised that a failure of basis or a failure of consideration can be a reference to a failure of a state of affairs on which a relevant contract is premised. Um, but he added and explained that the failure of the relevant state of affairs has to be, as he put it, fundamental to the basis of the agreement. And he quoted from this Supreme Court case called Barnes, and it may be helpful if I just recite the quotation for a moment. In that case, Lord Toulson said, I use the expression 
fundamental to the basis because it should not be thought that mere failure of an expectation which motivated a party to enter into a contract may give rise to a restitutionary claim. Most contracts are entered into with intentions or expectations which may not be fulfilled and the allocation of the risk of their non-fulfillment is a function of the contract. So what the, the court recognised was a distinction between, if you like, the failure of a basis which is fundamental to the agreement and a failure of a basis which motivated the parties to enter into the agreement in the first place. So having identified what's actually meant by a failure of basis, the judge went on to consider whether there was arguably in this case a failure of basis at all. And so far as that is concerned, the judge thought that there was no uh, failure of basis. Now, I had argued that the foundation of the lease was simply the grant of a term of years. So uh, where the landlord, um, uh, as it were, confers or grants the legal interest in the premises to the tenant in return for the payment of the rent, that is what constitutes the foundation of the agreement. Um, the judge didn't quite accept that. He seemed to think that um, you might well have a lease where um, the foundation of it is not to be found in the grant of the legal interest itself, but in uh, something different. Um, but in this case, on the facts, what the judge was satisfied about was that um, the continued and uninterrupted lawful use of the premises as a cinema was not fundamental to the basis upon which it was entered into. Um, he recognised that clearly it was a state of affairs which may have been anticipated by the tenant uh, when entering into the agreement or the lease in the first place, because obviously the tenant only entered into the lease hoping it could use it as a cinema. Mm. Um, but nonetheless, he thought that the lease itself um, recognised or contemplated there may well be periods of time for which the premises couldn't be used as a cinema at all, for example, under the rent cessor provision. And as such, um, contractually speaking, the parties had already, as it were, allocated the risk of that state of affairs not uh, coming into existence. And he thought in the circumstances that the failure of basis argument would interfere, as he put it, between the agreed allocation of risk between the parties and be inconsistent with the terms of the leases. Um, quite separately, um, in a separate part of the judgment, the judge uh, thought that the failure of basis argument in any event, even if he was wrong and that there was a failure of basis in this particular case, uh, wouldn't actually amount to a legally recognisable defence to a contractual claim in debt. So it would have failed on that basis uh, also. Um, so that, that was failure of basis. And the third argument um, that was uh, run related to the set off point, mm. which I've already mentioned, uh, that, that was um, pretty straightforward. This was a fairly old lease and the rent was expressed to be payable without any deduction whatsoever. And it's been pretty well established now since uh, the case of Connaught in the late 90s that the use of the word deduction is not apt, contractually speaking, to exclude uh, a right of set off. 
Um, I tried to argue that the addition of the word whatsoever uh, might have changed the analysis, but uh, the judge, with respect, I think quite rightly, uh, was having none of that. So uh, as regards set off, the judge didn't think that there was a contractual exclusion. Um, we had accepted that the counterclaim, insofar as it related to insurance elements, was arguable and had to be disposed of at trial. And so to that extent, the tenant was allowed to set off uh, the amount of uh, the counterclaim against the arrears mm -hmm. outstanding. Okay. Um, it does seem that following this decision and, and the earlier uh, county court rulings this year uh, in Bank of New York Mellon, uh, International versus Cine UK Limited and others, and, and Commerce Real Investment, Gesselschaft, uh, VTFS Stores Limited, that tenants will find it difficult um, to defend uh, a claim of this type. Do you think there is any ground left, any, any successful arguments? And obviously, uh, much turns on the individual wording of leases in these cases. But do, do you think there is any ground left for a successful defence to be made out? Not much. Um, the, the, the available ground has been diminished um, in light of this third judgment, if only because um, this judgment, unlike the previous two, is a judgment of a uh, deputy judge of the High Court. Mm. Therefore, it actually has uh, effect as a precedent. So it will be mm -hmm. binding on lower courts and will be followed by um, the High Court unless uh, another judge of the High Court thinks it's obviously wrong. So it does make it more difficult to argue, at least up to High Court level, successfully that um, any of these conventional defences that are being trotted out by tenants um, are likely to succeed. Um, however, as against that, I suppose there are two points that tenants uh, may take some encouragement from. The first is that the Cine UK case, the decision of Master Dagnall, itself is now subject to an appeal in the Court of Appeal. Um, I don't know whether um, there may be an appeal against the London Trocadero case. Um, I suppose it's, it's quite foreseeable that there may well be, mm. uh, particularly because um, uh, Master Dagnall's decision is now subject to an appeal. Mm -hmm. I can see that it may uh, result in this judgment as well being considered at the same time. Um, so who knows what the Court of Appeal might make of all of this. Um, and separately, uh, quite apart from all of that, in this judgment itself, uh, Robin Voss was quite careful to emphasise a point that, um, Jess, you've just made, which is that every lease will turn on its own uh, language. Mm. So whilst the lease in the, this picture house case um, was worded in such a way that the court could be satisfied there was no failure of basis, that may not be the case uh, where a lease is worded differently. And so um, I suppose what the judgment does do possibly is leave open an argument in an appropriate case that there may have been a failure of basis which could then possibly be twinned with some sort of counterclaim uh, to get over the hurdle that uh, Robin Voss has also put in the judgment that this doesn't actually amount to a legally recognisable defence at all. And um, you mentioned earlier on that the, the context is we um, the conventional means of rent recovery uh, are not currently uh, available to landlords with the, with the various moratoria on forfeiture and, and uh, commercial rent arrears recovery. But against that background, it does seem like this type of claim is a, is a reliable and potentially effective option for landlords. But yet 
uh, whilst we have had three cases, you know, looking at the vast sums in rent arrears that have amounted across various industries, it's perhaps surprising that there haven't been more of these claims that have, have come to court. Uh, are there any reasons why landlords might still be reluctant to pursue this co- this this course and resort to litigation? Um, and do you think that this uh, you mentioned this this high court authority might persuade a few more to pursue this avenue? Well, I mean, I, I suppose what one might want to ask in the first place why there have only been three reported decisions on rent mm. uh, out of the whole pandemic, and I suspect. Probably a lot of that is to do with the fact that um, a large number of landlords and tenants have come to arrangements, mm. consensual arrangements regarding the arrears. Um, Which, of course, is what the what the government encouraged exactly. landlords and tenants throughout. Exactly. So that's probably um, one of the drivers as to why there aren't um, so many of these cases about. Of course, also, uh, I, I suspect a lot of landlords take the view that pursuing tenants for relatively small sums of money or pursuing tenants uh, who have very weak covenant strength or are close to or are in insolvency in a practical sense is not going to be worth uh, very much. So those sorts of factors may be the reason why there haven't been many of these cases. And I suspect it's the same sort of factors which would probably influence whether or not a landlord um, bothers um, issuing proceedings against the tenant in the future. Um, But having said that, it seems to me that um, given the ongoing uh, moratorium uh, against uh, winding up petitions for um, excluded debts, which relate effectively to COVID arrears and um, forfeiture for unpaid rent, um, this is still quite an attractive route for landlords to explore. Certainly larger tenants, um, particularly um, those who might be publicly listed or whatever, um, won't want to have a judgment against them or still mm. less an unsatisfied judgment against them because it causes all sorts of problems for bank finance and all the rest of it. So indirectly, um, a recalcitrant tenant um with a judgment against it will be, I think, um, very um, keen to make sure that the judgment is satisfied. So it does. It, it is a, an attractive route available to landlords, to my mind. Um, the other um, potential reason why it's so attractive is because of the um, incoming arbitration scheme. Mm. Now, a lot has been written about it and spoken about it. Of course, no one really knows anything about about it we don't know very much about it or how it's going to work but one thing does seem tolerably clear and it's that the arbitration scheme itself presupposes that there is no dispute that the arrears exist Mm. so it is it's premised on the basis i think that uh, there is an existing debt in the form of rent arrears now where a tenant Um, argues that the arrears are not due for one reason or another, um, you can legitimately go to court um, in light of these judgments, hope, I think, reasonably optimistically to get a judgment against the tenant. And of course, at that point, by reason of the doctrine of merger, your cause of action for unpaid rent arrears merges into the judgment. So you no longer have rent arrears. What you've got is a judgment. And It might be said, although, again, it's all going to 
turn on the, the words and the way in which the arbitration scheme operates. It might be said at that point, actually, you're completely outside the scope of the uh, scheme it, itself because you no longer have any rent arrears. You've just got a judgment. So uh, that of itself is a reason why landlords might wish to pursue uh, claims for rent arrears. Okay, thank you very much. And um, we we may well uh, speak further once once we know a bit more detail about the uh, arbitration process. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for uh, explaining uh, London Trocadero to, uh, versus Picture House to us, Nick. Uh, you have been listening to On the Case from EG.